Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Toby, really great to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. I, I really appreciate it. No worries. It's nice to be recorded and uh, be talking in the States. Talking in the States. Welcome to America digitally, man. Uh, we always love to get this show started with some background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Wonderful. Yeah. So uh, I'm Toby. That's a good uh, good starting point. Um, I have quite an academic background. So broadly, my background stems into plant science. And uh, I've been fascinated with plants for a long time. Uh, and most my kind of like core part of the academic world that I'm like particularly passionate about is understanding how plants interact with other organisms within their environment, whether that be fungi, bacteria, animals, um, or other plants themselves. I'm kind of fascinated by this communication play that goes on between, uh, let's call them organisms that are stuck in in one place, so non-motile organisms. Um, and so I've spent the last 10 years basically looking at this topic uh, and understanding where this is, is kind of going. So I spent a year working as a researcher at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, um, which is a big plant research institute in the UK. Um, and then I went on to go and do a PhD in plant pathology. So looking at uh, crop diseases, I was looking at some uh, work on genetic engineering, uh, how to engineer resistance to particular fungal diseases, um, mainly in plants. Um, and I finished that PhD about two years ago. Um, and I guess I got to the, the place with the kind of academic studies and, and the kind of world that we live in at the moment and realized that, you know, all the stuff I was doing was really cool, but the applications for what I was doing was a long way off. Um, so, and I kind of went, you know, given the state of the world with biodiversity and climate at the moment, I wanted to work on something that was going to have an application that is more immediate. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that plant scientists and people who are working in the ecological space nowadays have got uh, to do, I think, for the planet to get into a reasonable state. And so I delved into the kind of startup world back then. Um, and I'm sure we'll dive into kind of the root of how I ended up launching Rhizocore. But in a nutshell, that's me. Yeah, and that's awesome. And something I want to throw at you right off the bat, because I'm curious, what do you think about the idea of like, there's a lot of talk about rewilding, protecting um, conservation, but what are your thoughts on when it comes to plant life in particular, um, like the greening of the planet from increased amounts of CO2? I wonder if you have put any thought into this. Yeah, I think... There's a lot of predictions on what may or may not happen with rising CO2 levels uh, and how plants will respond to this. And it's a lot more nuanced than I think what a lot of you think about. And it depends on the type of photosynthesis that a plant does, uh, depending on which groups of plants will do better than others. I mean, the best kind of way I think to look at really kind of responses that you get of plants is to kind of look what happens when we do indoor farming. Um, because 
you know, if you go and look at any of the indoor farms that are popping up all over the place at the moment, whether that be big greenhouse farming or whether that's kind of these warehouse uh, farms that pop up, almost all of them enrich their atmosphere with CO2. Um, and so I think on average, you're looking at them raising their kind of parts per million to about 750s uh, of CO2, and that's where they get the best growth rates of plants. Um, so small increases in atmospheric CO2, which we're going to see globally, will probably have an increase on plant growth. Um, but how that plays into ecological feedback systems is quite an unknown. And whether we see that actually play out, who knows? 750, man, that's crazy. What are we at? We're at like 425 right now. I know it like fluctuates throughout the year, doesn't it? Yeah, I was going to say. And there's a lot of nuance in this. Some plants don't respond that well to increases in CO2, whereas others respond very well. And again, that's down to the specific type of photosynthesis that different plant groups uh, tend to perform. All right, Ward, this is going to be a fun interview. Um, where, where are you from originally? So I grew up in rural England um, on the west coast, uh, not the west coast, the west side of England, um, pretty much on the border between England and Wales in a small county called Shropshire. Uh, I grew up working on farms um, in, a, in a small village. Um, and that's kind of where I got to know the natural world and the outdoor world. Um, and yeah, I guess a lot of my interest in the in plants and organismal biology stems from spending a lot of time when I was younger outside. And where did this like entrepreneurial mindset, this idea that challenges offer opportunities, like where did this come from in like your life experience? That's a difficult question because I still, I'm quite conflicted by the fact that I've got this label of entrepreneur because to be honest, I don't really care about money. Um, and so this whole kind of innovation drive um, is I find a very weird space to be in. Um, if you had asked my mates at the start of when I started doing my PhD, whether I would ever go into business, they would have uh, probably laughed at you if you told them I had ended up here. Um, but I think innovation at its heart, which is where entrepreneurship comes from, is crucial for solving global problems. And whether that's done in academic worlds or whether it's done in commercial worlds or startup worlds, everybody's doing the same thing um and you know we have to innovate our way out of problems at the moment and so i i see myself more of as a as a, an innovator to try and solve global planetary problems rather than an entrepreneur um although i'm learning very quickly about the business world and i mean you can't disassociate both worlds from each other because if you want to do anything that's going to innovate and um, at scale then you need the entrepreneurial side and the finance that comes with that to basically fund scale up of projects so they're intertwined but i much prefer to think of myself as kind of more on the innovative side of what's going on sounds like fun to me can you tell me about your experience at a, a deep science ventures like what exactly that was yeah so when I finished my PhD, um, I was in the process of thinking about launching a company at that point in between submitting my thesis and having my uh, confirmation viva. And that was launching a business in the kind of controlled environment agriculture space, so the indoor farming arena, where I designed some new tech to basically make the use of space in indoor farms more efficient. And at that time, Deep Science Ventures um, were looking for somebody to basically uh, come into their um, sphere and basically spend 12 months pretty much as kind of the best way to describe it as an entrepreneur in residence um, to look at a particular area, which was this controlled environment ag space and to build multiple company concepts within that kind of environment. 
And so I actually got introduced to them through a contact uh, at the tech transfer office at the University of Bath, where I was studying and was like, Toby, you should speak to these guys. Um, and I did. And that's kind of where it all got kicked off. So that's how I came into contact with Deep Science Ventures. Deep Science Ventures in itself is a, I like to call it a bit of a paradigm shift in how we create companies. And it exists because the founders, Dom and Mark, who are amazing individuals, worked at the tech transfer office at Imperial College London. Or Mark did, that's kind of his background. And realized that during his time there, he'd only really facilitated the spin out of software companies from what is a major uh, academic institution in the UK that should be spinning out way more like high deep tech companies than what it was. And Mark basically realized that there was some crucial problems in the way that our academic systems are set up for spinning out companies that put blocks in the way. And these are crucially on uh, intellectual property uh, and the amount of equity that universities like to take in companies that tend to spin out from them. And they're big blocks to getting any startups out. And it's one of the reasons why we don't see very many startups coming out of academic institutes. Um, and Deep Science Ventures was founded to basically get around that problem. And so in a premise, Deep Science Ventures, uh, identifies particular areas that it thinks are interest for building companies. So in my case, controlled environment agriculture. And then it hires in uh, scientists and engineers who have got deep knowledge of those kind of individual areas and basically funds their salaries for pretty much 12 months and basically goes, we're going to give you free reign to look at this space. We're going to give you help in building companies in the, uh, that solve major problems that also have quite a lot of market traction in terms of generating customers, which is kind of the one of the crucial components that academics uh, and people who are scientifically minded have a big problem with. And so at Deep Science Ventures, that's kind of what I did. I spent six months building concept, concept company ideas of which I probably built about six or seven different ones. And kind of after the first six months, you basically lined up those ideas and basically went, which one of these companies or company concepts has the biggest upside for the planet in terms of biodiversity and climate? if it's scaled to the extent that it could, given the finance that would be available. Uh, and RisoCore, which I then launched out of that program, uh, came out on top, and we've basically been running with that ever since. So so that's why you went straight from university into starting your own business, because you had like this program that kind of jump-started you into that. How much are these universities taking from other companies that are coming out of them? Uh, stupid amounts. Um, we might talk about spin-up science a bit a bit later on. I'll give you some ballpark figures, but basically um, I learned about this when I came into contact with them uh, and did some training programs with them. But historically, universities tend to take about 60% of companies that come out in a spin-out, which basically prevents a lot of investors investing in companies because the cap tables are all messed up. Um, and so you have huge problems. Um, and it's starting to change a little bit because there's been some success stories recently like the most well known is in it in it in the uk at least as an example of a company called xylo which spun out of the university of bristol but basically the founder harry is a phenomenal guy and he basically argued the university of bristol down to i think six percent in the end uh, was mm -hmm. probably the the figure that came out um but it took a long time to get to that process and most universities are, are looking at taking somewhere around the 50 percent ballpark some of them even take up to 60 percent but there's, there's basically a, a big roadblock there. And if you're basically going to reduce that, you have to spend months in discussions with the universities to argue them down in their percentage and bring in 
you know, bits of paperwork um, that are kind of good for basically causing that kind of reduction in equity. Um, but that is kind of, it's a historic problem that universities have. And one of the reasons why you see so few uh, things spinning out of universities when we should be spinning out way more. Right. Well, there's definitely a lot that spin out of universities here in the U.S., but they they like kids like drop out or they just don't give any equity to the school. They take what they learn and they go do their own thing. Yeah. I would say that. I, yeah, I'd argue even even with U.S. universities that they some of the universities there have a reasonable rate of spin outs. But for the amount of finance and the amount of brain power that those universities house, the amount of spin outs that turn out of them is incredibly poor. And it's the same across the globe. Um, US might be slightly better, but you know, across the board, it's not great given the amount of brain power that is available in those institutions. We should be getting way more. Yeah, you know, innovation is very interesting. It takes a certain type of person to pioneer a, a corporation. So before we start talking about Rizocor, I just wanted to ask you a broad question about your thoughts on. There's a lot of talk about climate change, carbon emissions, bring down our carbon footprint, we're killing the planet. But what I don't hear a lot of talk about is this horrible, so if, if people listen to this show a lot, I mean, I, I, I had like one solo episode where I, I, my company focuses on solving the most pressing, on helping people solve the most pressing challenges of our time. And it's called climate change realty. So we focus on climate change. But when it comes to the word pressing, like what's the the biggest challenge going on right now? What's the thing that needs to get fixed the quickest? This biodiversity crisis is completely out of control. Like all life on earth is kind of being destroyed and all the humans are sucking up all the resources and taking everything. So I wanted to ask you, like, what are your thoughts on how everyone's talking about climate change, but I hardly ever talk about this biodiversity issue at all. Yeah, um, it's a difficult one because the two are so heavily intertwined. The problem that causes both of them is the same and the solutions that will solve both of them will probably also be the same. Um, and so, I mean, that's a very broad statement and there's a lot of nuance in that. But I think what you see with what's going on with carbon at the moment and the way we think about emissions, um, the biodiversity kind of, um problem and crisis is probably about and how we deal with it is probably 20 to 30 years behind what we're doing with climate um yeah. to the point where there's a couple of things that have been making waves i don't know if you've come across the uk government released a review on biodiversity crisis called the discupta review i don't know if i pronounced that right um but it was led by an economic uh, economics professor um but it was commissioned by the government and it's a massive document about what's going on with biodiversity and how we fix that but there was a similar review done very early on in the climate crisis and so you kind of see the the whole kind of cogs of governments and regulations starting to turn around biodiversity but there's a delay of like a couple of decades um and it's a huge problem um but a lot of them stem from you know all of all of the issues that we see on the planet at the moment stem from human population growth um, and how we utilize resources. And we've just got to be a lot more savvy about that. We will not change human population growth. Um, it's pretty set. We know that the planet will essentially reach uh, or human population will reach a carrying capacity uh, of about 11 billion people by 2100, give or take, and then it will plateau. And it might even start to decline after that. And there's not really anything that we could do uh, that will change that uh, trajectory at this point. And so 
everything that we do from now on that impacts on both the biodiversity and the climate crisis has to be put in perspective of that. And that means we know we're going to have to feed that population. We know that that population is going to have to be housed. We know that there's going to be reduction in areas of suitable land area um, that are going to be available for those that human population. And we have to figure out all of this in the same context of being able to put aside land for biodiversity and projects that will sequester carbon. And that's going to be huge land areas. Um, and, you know, the natural world is the best sequester, uh, sequestration method, method of um, carbon that we have. And the more that we understand about those systems, uh, the better the chance we have of actually making sure that we kind of maximize them. And this is kind of where the fungal side of things comes in. And I can touch on a couple of points in that area. But, you know, same problem. Um, arguably, biodiversity, I would say, is probably worse. Um, just because we don't really give such a monkeys about it. Yep. Because like climate crisis is going to directly impact people's lives. And so people are starting to make a hoo-ha about it because you're starting to see people dying. Biodiversity crisis, indirectly, yes, it has that type of impact, but it's not as visible. And as I'm going to touch on with fungi, I guess, in this in interview as well, if humans can't see it and it's not going to affect them, we don't tend to think much about it. Well, let's let's think about it today. Um what what do you understand about the the living environment like what is rhizocore technologies what is your your thesis all that stuff yeah so rhizocore is in a nutshell a company that produces uh, a bunch of symbiotic fungal organisms that associate with trees um and the intention is that we will basically supply these fungal organisms that are locally sourced um, so we have a massive strain library that we're kind of generating at the moment so that all of our strains are really regional and specific to their trees. Uh, and we produce them so that they can be supplied at the point of somebody planting a tree. And so literally we have a, a pellet of live growing fungal, uh, what we call mycelium, which is the body of a fungus that is small and it basically gets dropped into the planting hole before the tree roots goes in. It's as simple as that. Um, and we know these fungi are crucially important at supporting trees. Um, in fact, plants would not have moved out of the oceans onto land without this symbiotic relationship. Um, it's that crucially important. And I think over 95% of the plant kingdom in terms of species associates in some way with a, a symbiotic fungal organism. They're essentially fertilizers for plants. And so that's what we do. The intended outcome is that basically trees will um, grow quicker so we supply to commercial forestry the fungi also reduce the mortality rate of tree planting operations which in some cases can be really high um, and it will probably surprise you how many trees die after we put them in the ground because we're not thinking more kind of his, uh, holistically at how the ecology of the systems work but in in on top of that you get a bunch of what we call value-added benefits and so Trees, once they're connected to fungal networks, have greater tolerance to drought, salinity, um, and a bunch of environmental stresses. Uh, and on top of that, they increase the amount of carbon that we sequester in, in our woodland and forest systems in two different ways. One's in basically improving um, the kind of biomass of plants, so they grow faster, the photosynthetic rate goes up, um, and less of them die. Um, and also, 
And really the most important part is that they basically take a bunch of the sugars that plants photosynthesize, which are the carbon molecules, uh, and they pump them into soils. Uh, and fungi are the best excretors of compounds uh, really on the planet. Their whole life cycle is about excreting enzymes, amino acids, uh, proteins, and sugars into the soils. Uh, and basically these compounds are what enrich the soil carbon pool. And also those are the compounds, the small molecules that we are finding last the longest in the soil carbon pool. And so you increase the permanence of the carbon store within soils if you basically increase the fungal component in the soil. So this is what Rhizocore does. Yeah, it's cool. Let's try and give like a little broad overview of like how trees and fungi work. So I'm trying to conceptualize their soil, which is a bunch of living bacteria, not even bacteria is not the right way, what micro microorganisms in the soil and you put this this being in that is made out of roots that attach to the microorganisms and they exchange nutrients between each other have this co-positive um, interaction and the trees are not only feeding from photosynthesis because when people think of plants they think sun hits the plant plant gets food food grows but really it's eating on or eating or consuming or um, on both ends, is it not? It's it's getting sunlight and turning that into glucose and then getting nitrogen from the soil and other nutrients like that yeah. and then growing that way. And then because it grows, other animals can come live in the tree and then they can get they can eat the ants that live in the tree. And these this fungi, which is another is, is fungi a microorganism as well. Yeah, it's class fungi. Fungi is a, a, a microorganism that can spread very far because it has these little, uh, I don't even know what they're called. They're not like seeds. They're like, there's they're, really, really, really mycelium. tiny mycelium that can float all through the soil and through the earth. So when you're putting these um, mycelium with the tree, you're giving it like an extra boost of nutrients and the, the, the mushrooms are not the mushrooms. The fungi are feeding off of the soil and the tree and also giving them nutrients that they want. I'm, yeah, how, exactly. how close was I? Yeah, pretty good. Um, I mean, you described one very distinct part of the fungal kingdom, which are the symbiotic fungal organisms. And so basically this is the group that we work with and their whole role is to essentially provide plants with nitrogen and phosphorus It's really their primary role. And so these are two crucial um, elements that plants need to grow. Every, I mean, this is why you see when farmers put um, NPK fertilizer on their on their soils. This is essentially what they're doing. They're replicating what fungi do in natural systems. And so you can basically think of the symbiotic fungi as being the natural plant fertilizers. Um, and so this is kind of how that works. And basically, the fungi strands, this mycelium, grows either directly into the root cells of plants where there's an exchange of nutrients. So basically the fungi puts nitrogen and phosphorus into the plant and in return, the plant basically provides the fungi with sugars to grow. That's the symbiosis. That's what happens in the exchange. Or in the case of trees, you don't get the mycelium growing directly into the root cell. You basically get a sheath forming around the roots and that exchange happens uh, in a really bizarre interface that goes on between plant roots and the fungal uh, kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's in a nutshell really what what um, that group of fungi are doing. They're, fungi do a whole host of other things in the environment as well, um, which we probably won't touch upon too much. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's what that group do. Yeah, I mean, we're breathing in fungi right now, right? Yeah, I had um, uh, 
one of my mentors uh, when I was doing my degree was a absolutely crazy mycologist. Um, uh, his name was Alan Rayner. And he once said to me when we were out on a fungal foray that if you shut your eyes and and we had a, another sense, and that sense was to be able to see uh, a molecule called chitin, which basically is the outside cell wall component of all fungi, you would pretty much be able to make out every structure on the planet because everything is coated really in fungal spores in some regard. Uh, and so they are ubiquitous, they're pretty much everywhere, and they perform really, really crucial parts of nutrient cycling processes on the planet. So as far as these symbiotic fungi that you're working with come, um, how does it actually increase carbon capture potential? And like, I think you explained it a little bit before. You're, they're these like substrate additives. It's kind of like you're, you're like squirting it into the, tr the tree. I don't know if that's exactly right. How, how does that actually reduce more CO2? Yeah, so when you basically have, oh, where to start here? So the, the basically, <laughs> the, the the reason why we supply these particular fungi to areas that are planting um, trees is because where the areas we plant trees tend to not have these fungal organisms in them. Um, because when you have a symbiosis, the fungi is needs the tree and the environment to survive. And so in most like for ancient forest ecosystems that you go into, you find these fungal uh, organisms. Um, but in newly planted forests, which is where we work, you don't find these uh, organisms at all. And so you basically got a, a system that's devoid of fungi. How they increase carbon within the system happens in two distinct ways. One is in, in improving plant growth um, in terms of increasing the amount of photosynthesis that goes on. So literally just quicker growing plants that have more biomass, very easy to measure. Uh, and they also reduce the mortality rate of, of plants. So particularly with what we're doing, you get more trees growing at the end of the process. And the second part is in the soil pool. And so when trees basically take sugars from, uh, or they convert carbon from dioxide from the atmosphere into sugars uh, to basically grow, they then pump in the region of 40 to 60% of the sugars that the plant makes goes into the fungal network. And this basically then, the fungi network grows within the soil and it secretes those uh, uh, carbon-rich molecules such as proteins, uh, amino acids, enzymes into the soil to basically um, acquire nitrogen and phosphorus. It breaks down minerals, it breaks down organic matter in the, the soil as they're decomposing basically in the soil. And those compounds in the soil uh, basically increase the amount of carbon that's going into the soil because this fungi are basically secreting carbon-rich compounds into the soil. Uh, and so that's what happens. And we think on average that you're looking at about a 20% improvement um, of the total volume of carbon within soils when you've got rich communities of these mycorrhizal fungi uh, in there. So that's kind of roughly what you're what you're looking at in terms of the numbers. That was fantastic. I, I was so intrigued to listen to that whole thing. Um, so there's, I'd I want to get this message out so much that the potential for soil to sequester carbon is so, so large. Do you have any like numbers or data on this? I spoke to a guy yeah. who's working with farmers and he's, he's saying that, that all the soil uh, or all the soil on the planet could easily sequester all the CO2 that we emit each year. Do you know anything about this at all? Yeah. So the most famous stat for this is that 
there is twice as much carbon in the world's soils than there is in the atmosphere and in the vegetation combined. So there's an absolutely colossal amount of carbon in the soils. And it's one of the biggest sinks of carbon on the planet. And so neglecting soils is a really, really stupid thing to do. And it has to be said that the amount of carbon that are in soils has been declining since agriculture began. Um, and there's been a big decrease uh, in, the, in the amount of uh, carbon in soils in agricultural states. Um, and also, although that's a massive number, it's also worth looking at different climatic areas of the planet and understanding that soil builds and remains or has much more carbon in it in particular regions. Uh, And one of the things that we neglect is that the northern temperate regions of the planet, those areas that have got boreal forests, North America, Canada, through northern Europe, uh, that are very typical areas. You see a lot of things like peat bogs forming there, have far, far more carbon in them than any other soils on the planet, including the tropics. And And this is mainly because, yeah, this is mainly because, or if you think about it, when you have vegetation growth it falls it decays it forms this kind of uh well what essentially becomes soil but essentially the decomposition processes that you have are slowed down in those regions because they're cold Uh, and so basically you have a flux with soils so basically carbon comes into plants and then goes into soils either from plants dying or from other organisms pumping it into the soils and then basically you have decomposition Uh, microorganisms in the soil that basically respire and CO2 goes back into the atmosphere through respiration. And so basically in northern temperate regions, the amount of um, carbon that's going back into the atmosphere through respiration is decreased because the temperatures are lower. And so if we're going to look at how you basically build carbon in soils and make it last longer, it makes more sense to be doing much more work in the northern temperate regions than it does in the tropics because that basically flux changes. And so the permanence of the carbon store in the northern temperate regions will be much more permanent than it will be in the tropics. Do you think we could oversaturate soils with too much carbon, or would that just increase the amount of soil, like the layer of the soil? It just increases the amount of soil. This is what a peat bog is. Um, It's just carbon-rich soils that haven't decomposed very quickly. So this is what is happening. Yeah, so it wouldn't be bad to have like uh, more soil on Earth. We just have more life. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm on board. That sounds great. Um, what what and when it comes to like getting partners or making this like economically feasible, what are like the measurable benefits to people when it comes to like woodland restoration projects that you're involved with? Yeah, there's a number of things that our kind of customers and partners are interested in. So commercial forestry companies just interested in improvements in tree growth rates, not because of the end biomass that they can get is improved, but because you can reduce what we call the rotation length of the crop. So for example, in the UK, the biggest tree crop that we grow here is a a tree species called Cicta spruce. And this has a 35 year crop cycle. So you plant it and it takes 35 years before you cut it down and harvest it for timber. Um, And if you basically have these kind of mycorrhizal fungal species that we produce in the system, then we think we can take five years off the crop. Um, And so this is something that they're particularly interested in. uh, And that's kind of like route one commercial forestry companies. 
we also, and I much prefer working with the ecological restoration, wooden restoration uh, groups. So these tend to form into like charities, nonprofit organizations, but even philanthropists are increasing in this group. And bizarrely, you're seeing quite a lot more corporations um, buying up areas to, to reforest for their carbon, what I call, or what is called carbon insetting. So you kind of see those different groups. Uh, and they're not so interested in growth rate improvements. They're more interested in decreasing mortality rates um, of trees because, you know, they're planting trees. They're often buying areas of land that is uh, cheaper areas of land that are poorer in their soil quality. Uh, and so the trees that they're planting often struggle uh, to uh, get access to the nutrients that they need. And so by putting the fungi in the system, you're basically giving them a boost because essentially you're allowing them to get access to more nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, and so it's this decrease in mortality rate that I think is kind of the most important aspect. And just to give you some numbers on that, um, like we've had partners here in the UK who have said they're planting uh, mortality rates at upwards of 80% in the first three years in some sites. Um, so you lose almost all the trees that you put in the ground in, in some cases. I mean, you can dive into like big company websites. Uh, and so I think one of the best companies on the planet is a company called Ecosia, who you've probably come across search engine that plants engine. trees but you can dive through their website and they're quite uh, happy to tell uh, to say that you know in their calculations for how many trees are planted they take off 25 to 30 percent of the trees that they plant because they know that much is going to die in the first three years and so you can dive into these types of like uh, you know planting operations and see what's going on one of the biggest failures was a, a planting uh project that happened in th in turkey a couple of years ago where there was this big push and they put 11 million trees in the ground and almost all of them died in the first six months um and it's not just a problem with the mycorrhizal fungi there's other problems in there but it's certainly a problem that you know we're planting trees in in poor areas poor soil conditions that are only improved if you look at the ecology of the system and make sure that the support networks that are not only just fungi there's also bacteria that support tree growth as well um, are put in at the same time uh, and and this is kind of what's the most interesting kind of part of it and there's some other nuanced bits like some people are interested in carbon but i would say that that's a really small minority at the moment most people don't give a monkeys um it's kind of a discrepancy that you see within like media and discourse like people are like carbon 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 and then you talk to commercial companies and they're like nah not really interested in that we're interested in increasing our productivity output in terms of timber they're like money 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 yeah, um, which, you know, carbon might be money, money, money in the future, but they're not betting on it yet. Yeah. I mean, what are your what are your personal thoughts about making like ecological restoration, like explicitly valued economically? Do you think we need like a, like a carbon tax? I guess the ecological restoration goes beyond just CO2. And I wanted to ask you if you think that your company could eventually reach a point where it's it's working with specifically um, private corporations rather than just like nonprofits or like philanthropists. Yeah. I mean, like Rizacor on itself is built on a business model that just is a, is a route one supply of a, a fungal pellet to private companies. Big commercial forestry companies are engaging with us as well as, uh, these time of nonprofits and philanthropy organizations. So the company itself will do fine economically without any of the natural capital markets. But it is a crucial thing. And I don't think it's just natural capital that should enter this this equation. This is a, 
something that we need to think about in terms of our economic system and how we think about things that don't produce a return that are incredibly valuable and we need within our society, which includes ecological things, but it also includes things like social care uh, and healthcare um, to a certain extent. You know, looking after your gra- like grandparents when they get old is just as equally something that we should value as a society and uh, as a yeah as a society as we should value ecosystem restoration. And so these two things are not. Um, separate and how we economically think about that is is somewhat important i think one of the things that i think i would like to see change which won't happen anytime soon because it's highly hypothetical is that our currencies are not linked in any way to something that is what we consider potentially a valuable output so you know the way currency is derived is based off some sort of resource value historically whether that be gold or mineral or something, is attached to some sort of index that is essentially a resource. And that's kind of historically what things have been done. But we could very well generate currencies that are based on values. So carbon credits is a really kind of probably the first real example of how you do this, where you can basically write this essentially credit, which is essentially a unit of currency, is valued uh, and it's one ton of carbon and it's tied explicitly to a natural resource. But we could also do this for social care. Like you could be like, this is tied to 10 hours man work uh, of a carer in a system. And that you then trade those uh, as a currency. And then you basically tie currencies into things that we should value more. And so there's a way to build in to our economic systems what we do that way. Um, That's what I would like to see. I don't see it happening anytime soon. Um, uh, But how we integrate things that have hypoth or things that have values that don't see a like route one obvious return is something that we don't have sorted in the capital capital system that we have. I think it can work in a capital system. Um, but it would need some pretty radical reform of how we think about valuing uh, productivity. Yeah, I mean radical reform could be could be pretty cool as long as it doesn't topple everything that we already have. That's a very interesting idea that you have. It seems that we're moving um, the other way to uh, digital currencies that are tied to code, which have no innate value beyond just the currency itself rather than tying currency to activity. But that's a whole interesting topic. I've been reading Ray Dalio's new book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, and he talks a lot about how currencies change and how the reserve currency status is one of the most powerful things that the U.S. has. But that's a conversation for another. Yeah, exactly. Um, Before we sign off, I wanted to bring it back to overpopulation for a little bit to kind of get your perspective on that, because you said you called it one of the biggest problems we're facing. Um, And I've spoken to a, a couple degrowth advocates. And in my recent time kind of thinking about the issue, I've moved away from that idea that increasing population is um, intrinsically problematic because I'm just a genuine optimist. So I think that if we can get people to work together, we can actually um, create a regenerative economy and not only create more people, but create more living things, which we're going to need to do based on the biodiversity crisis that we discussed earlier. So I just wanted to get, you know, more of your thoughts on the overpopulation thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm going to give you 
advice um, on this. There's a there's a charity called Gapminder, which some of you might have come across, um, which basically looks at population growth. And it's mainly an educational charity about how populations are doing, where populations are going, and what we know is going to... And we pretty much know what's going to happen with population growth. And there's not much we can do to change it, nor would we want to change it, I think. Um, and so population growth, any change is going to throw up problems. And we're changing a population. And we're changing a population size fast. We're going to have to deal with that. And maybe it's not the best way to see it as problems, but just things that we're going to have to... to um, solve in the future opportunities. Um, and yeah then there's opportunities definitely within that there's also big pitfalls and hurdles that we could come across um climate change is one of them because you know this the kind of level of life that we want and have in particularly in western societies or what people call the developed nations um is at a base level that if ev all of those 11 billion people that will be on the planet in 2100 have that is unsustainable. Well, I mean, even we're kind of unsustainable now within our current area of resource use. And that's hugely problematic. We're becoming more sustainable and it is happening. Um, it's not happening quick enough. Uh, and that's why there's so much innovation that needs to be there. Um, but yeah, go and check out Gapminder. They've got a couple of um, YouTube videos um, the founder of Gapminder even did a couple of docu uh, like presentations on the BBC, uh, on the BBC, which are like hour-long presentations, which really succinctly summarise what we know about population uh, and where it's going. But population change is happening differently on different continents as well. Like there will be a lot of growth in Asia and Africa, and there won't be that much growth in population elsewhere. And so, how that kind of fits into how we think about solutions in the future is quite important. Um, and, you know, protecting ecosystems and doing large scale land projects in Africa is probably going to be problematic because that's where we're going to see the, the biggest population growth over the coming decades. Um, and so there's going to be a lot more pressure on those ecosystems, whereas there's going to be less pressure on ecosystems in, say, South America. And so it might be worth spending more of our efforts there, uh, at least until population growth is kind of settled. Um, even though it might be more expensive, but it's kind of how you kind of regulatory pick apart this this question. But and and how we do food production is is a really massive issue, um, and it's one we haven't solved yet. It's one that people point the picture at and go, "Oh, we'll innovate our way out of it." We always have, um, which we very well may do, um, but I would say it's not solved yet. Um, I, I would agree. And climate change will compound it. One of the biggest problems with climate change is losing uh, some of the mo biggest prime regions of uh, our food production uh, areas of the world, particularly the areas that we produce a lot of rice in, which will cause big problems in, in Asia. Um, and these are compounding factors and they stem down to population growth and the types of lives that we live, I live, you live, um, generate CO2. Yeah. And that's just well, something we have to basically accept uh, and come up with ways around that. Yes. And I appreciate your perspective on that. It's definitely something to consider. Everything's interconnected, but I really do believe that if people are working on these issues, we will find solutions, but have, people have to actually care 
and there is this issue of um de- deriving economic value from our activity because that's the way this society's functioning um something i'm going to think about more but i i really i really appreciated that response do you want to just explain what uh spin up science and spark is before we kind of sign off yeah so spin up science is a is another company that i've had engagement with um uh who are a fantastic company and they're another company that are working in this space of trying to solve uh, the spin out problem of companies from academia uh, into generating more spin outs. Um, and Spark is just a program that they, they run uh, on that, which I did uh, cool. when I was doing my PhD and they're a fantastic company. Uh, they do it slightly differently to deep science ventures. So they're what we call more of a tech push advocate. Um, so working with universities on where universities have got that really deep technology in particular fields. So classic example is in like quantum computing or nuclear fusion or like those real game changing technologies and how we get more of those technologies that sit within university kind of systems and IP and how we basically retrain the academic systems and kind of rejig some of that into being able to produce more uh, uh, spin outs uh, from that kind of program. Um, it's, uh, it's a great company. I still have quite a lot of interaction with them. I do, I speak at some of their workshops, uh, given my experience. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's about understanding that process. And I think that again is one of the biggest things that we could solve that could have a really sizable impact on the planet is how we get more of the innovation that's in the academic space turned into things that are applicable, much more applicable. Um, and we have to solve some problems that we have with academic institutions and what they want uh, from that. And and also there's a bit of naivety in the academic community um, about the obsession with papers, which you may come across, which is problematic. Um, for getting patents um and this could be changed by changing the patent system a little bit and basically giving anybody who's produced an academic paper on something more rights to being able to publish a paper patent on what's in that paper like up to five years down the line rather than in the states it's one year if it's in the uk and europe if you've published it it's in the it's in the public domain and you can't put a patent on that anymore and so this process of paper first in academia rather than thinking is there something in here that we should patent that allows a company to basically either come in and utilize that intellectual property or us to spin out a company and basically protect our ip um is is really quite important and and spin up science is all about trying to retrain as much as we can some of the academic community and so they've got more of an eye on what is the process to generating a spin out if there's uh patentable intellectual property in the research they're doing and how to basically protect that before you publish a paper um and that's really crucial um but again i think it would be a lot easier for us to change our views on how we do patenting and give scientists more leeway and more time to be able to turn their their scientific papers and literature into innovation rather than having to retrain the whole of the academic system into thinking more about patents first um, but again, I haven't heard any murmurings that uh, 
the regulation around patents is likely to change. Um, and lots of people have big gripes with patents. Um, Elon Musk is uh, somebody who uh, moans a lot about the patent system uh, within it. And it's certainly not something that I think is without its flaws mm-hmm. um, and probably deserves a bit of a review in terms of how it's how we do patent law blocks universities spinning out companies that could genuinely make an impact on all sorts of areas of our lives. Yeah, well, I probably fall close. Well, I mean, what does my opinion matter about patents and stuff? But I probably fall closer in the in the Elon camp of let's let's spread the ideas so as many people can get involved as possible. But others, they want their uh, their money when it's due. But uh, Dr. Parks, you're the man. You're literally recording this in the lab right now. So it's been a true pleasure. Um, I just love to ask people at the end any advice you have for young folks who are passionate about contributing to building this better world that you're we've been discussing today. Yeah. Don't get too down. Enjoy yourself. Definitely go outside and spend more time outside and less time scrolling through your phone or watching TV on the internet. Because if you don't appreciate the outside in the natural world, then you'll never actually fully want to kind of get involved with it. And the other thing I would say is don't settle for cultural norms in your work life. Um, There's a kind of very clear trodden path in most western countries in particular of you know what you should do with your work life going forward um, which means a lot of people fall into companies that don't align with their beliefs in fixing problems and so i would say always say regularly check in with yourself and being like is the work that i'm doing contributing in a way to improving something for someone or for the planet uh, and if the answer is no consider changing jobs there's plenty of good ones out there. Oh, man, I could not agree more with that last one. Absolutely. Toby, thanks for taking some time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. No worries. Anytime. You got it, man. All right, everybody. See you soon. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.